Hey, welcome back to another episode of e-commerce on tap brought to you by Sourcefy and Isba. I'm joined by my co-host Aaron. Aaron, how's it going today? Doing good, Nathan. How are you? Oh, fantastic. I'm excited for this one because we are diving into one of my favorite, what I'll call like direct to manufacturer e-commerce brands, even though they started by telling people they didn't want to be called a brand. So Italic is the e-commerce company that we're going to be diving into today. But to start, let's talk about current news, current trends. What's been happening? What have you seen the past you know, week or two that's caught your eye? Yeah, the, the headline that I've been digging into this morning was, um, it, I don't know if it was a clickbait article or what, but there's an accusation now that Timu is starting to pick up factories that Xi'an has basically cut because they violated standards and stuff like that. And so that, if, if that's true, that seems to be a pretty, uh, pretty bad accusation. Uh, just the fact that you know someone could not be good enough for Xi'an and Timo's right there, like, hey, it's fine, just keep keep making it for us. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Wow, I I don't even know what to think of that right off the bat. Part of me wants to think that it could possibly be true, and part of me thinks it's like Xi'an trying to take a dig at Timu. But at the same time, let's be honest. I mean, there are end consumers that are going onto these apps and buying you know shoes for ten dollars and you know dresses for five dollars, like. How do those consumers actually think those products are made, right? Like, there's no way that those factories are going to be able to pass, you know, some audits that a, a very high-end, you know, brand wants to meet. And so, like, I think when you're targeting this, you know, low price point demographic, if you will, in my perspective, you know, those audits and, and you know, labor requirements are not nearly as top of mind as a consumer that's shopping at, let's say, like an Everlane or, you know, yeah. a higher end like Neiman Marcus, right? You're absolutely right. And I think that the interesting thing is that there's always trade-offs in supply chain. And as consumers, we don't want to know about them sometimes. I mean, you know, I would love for my iPhone to be 100 bucks, right? But, you know, we were holding Apple to a standard that, uh, you know, it really matters where, where the materials come. It really matters how the workers are treated. A hundred percent. I think as, as a consumer, oftentimes we're so closed off from the end outcome. I mean, uh, a news article that's not super related to e-commerce, but related to end consumers that caught my eye being based in Salt Lake City is that there's a company that just raised about $150 million to extract water to turn into a lithium from the Great Salt Lake. And then they're going to extract the lithium from the water and put that water back into the Great Salt Lake. And to me, there's got to be you know, something that's going to be wrong or go wrong with that process. And there's a lot of pushback in Utah around that. And especially in terms of, you know, protecting our Great Salt Lake. But at the end of the day, what is lithium used for, right? It's for battery production. We're at a big shortage in lithium for battery production. And most people are, are buying batteries through EV cars right now, right? Think of Tesla and, you know, Ford, I know is really focusing on an electric truck. But, you know, when I'm buying a Tesla, Am I thinking about the impact that that battery is having on the environment in my car? Probably not, because I'm thinking about that I'm protecting the environment by, you know, having an EV car, right? And so I think a lot of times us as end consumers, whether it be through, you know, Timu or Shein, or whether it be through buying an electric car, we don't think about the materials and parts and pieces and labor that goes in that product. We think about, wow, how are these shoes only $10? Or, wow, I'm going to you know, save so much on gas and help the environment by you know, driving an electric vehicle. Yeah, it reminds me of a commercial that I saw, this is probably 10 years ago, where it talked about how a Hummer has a lower carbon footprint than a Prius. Uh, just if you look at the total lifestyle because of the battery and all the lithium and stuff that goes into that. And so uh, it is a bit of a mixed bag right now, to say the least. Oh, it is 100%. But yeah, I mean, I wonder too, has she ever like published you know, any sort of reports on their factory base and has Timu either. I mean, it seems like, in my opinion, those reports would, uh, I, I think you could scrutinize them a lot. Yeah, I, I definitely want to dig into this one a little bit more. But, you know, Xi'an's an interesting one because they are a Chinese company that has been reluctantly Chinese, in my opinion. At the beginning, they were, you know, organized in New Jersey. And if you looked online, all of their people were in New Jersey, um, at least legally. And uh, that's not the case. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how that all plays out because what caught my eye this past week was Wish.com, which in my opinion was kind of like the original Xi'an and Timu, if you will. Um, they're basically, you know, Wish.com, for those that don't know, are kind of like a e-packet drop shipped 
marketplace that, you know, partners with Chinese manufacturers and sells cheap items in America, they got bought for like 180, I think it was $187 million this past week that was announced. They got bought by a, a Korean conglomerate. But when they went public, they were worth like $1.8 billion. They've raised over a billion dollars in, in venture capital. I mean, they were a unicorn and worth a lot of money. And especially during COVID, you know, grew like crazy. And now they got sold for pennies on the dollar. And so my question really is, what's the longevity of these like e-packet dropship type of marketplaces in America? I mean, there was a report that came out that said Timu spent not only $20 million on Super Bowl ads, but that last year on Facebook, on Meta alone, they spent over a billion dollars. So like spending 20 million on Super Bowl ads for them is like, you know, pennies and yeah. spending a billion dollars on Meta is just insane to think about. And then you think, are they going to continue to be able to spend that much? And if they don't spend ads, do they have strong, you know, LTV? Are consumers going to think like, oh, let me go back to Timu and shop there? I, I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, I think they're running the playbook that we had in 2018, 2019, where it was growth at all costs. I was measured after a multiple of, of, of growth. That's not the reality that we live in today. Um, I was at a conference uh, just recently and there was someone from Timo and I, I walked up and shook his hand and said, hey, you're taking all, all, all of my money because um, I, I love buying the cheap stuff uh, just to kind of test it out. I say it's research more than anything, but uh, my, my wife would prefer that I stop doing research in that case. But <laughs> Uh, it, it is a really interesting piece to see, you know, we've never seen somebody attempt to do this at scale, at, at least this level of scale. This is, you know, billions of dollars a year in trying to basically, you know, pull blood from a stone uh, when it comes to just brute force size and, and market uh, penetration. Yeah, I mean, and their growth is insane. If you look at their growth numbers, it's just wild to look at. But I mean, they're not doing so profitably by any measure. And I just wonder, like, is this going to be, you know, a complete drop off in, in five or 10 years? Like, I don't think there's longevity. I mean, I, I believe Amazon will be around for 10 years, and even longer than that. But is Timu still going to be around and Shein still going to be around in 10 years? I, I don't know, because I just don't think that number one, their growth is sustainable. And number two, I think if you turn off ads on Timu, you know, people are not going to be shopping there nearly as much. Whereas if you turn off ads on Amazon, let's say, you know, I'm still going to go to Amazon to get, 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 you know, most of my products that I buy. So I don't know. I think it's, I think it's kind of crazy to consider and think about. Um, it's just insane to think about how much they spent as well. And then also to see like, look, there was already kind of like an American based Timu called Wish that, you know, worked with all these manufacturers in, in China and they got sold for pennies on the dollar because, you know, the market changed, they were unprofitable. And, you know, they basically became a penny stock. It was it's crazy to see and think about. And it's like, you know, they're just trying to do the same model again, but uh, maybe even cheaper this time. Yeah, we, we've got to do a deep dive on Timu here in the next couple of weeks. So let's, uh, let's pencil that one in. You know, going back to the uh, the lithium thing that you mentioned, uh, did you see this news article about the Salton Sea in California? I haven't. No, I'll have to check it out. So basically, the Salton Sea, which is this artificial lake um, that is is been is dried up and it's kind of toxic um, in California, they have discovered lithium there, kind of the same sort of thing they're looking at with, with the Great Salt Lake. But the estimated deposits are equivalent to like fifty percent of the total world output. Like basically, the U.S. goes from being at the mercy of China, who owns all of rare earth minerals, to now being effectively a, a lithium and cobalt superpower. And so there's a lot of interest in this one. There's, there's a lot of uh, kind of obviously concerns about uh, remediation and, you know, the environmental impact on that. But uh, that could be an absolute game changer, not just for the EV world and things like that, but really for the U.S. economy. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that would be awesome if we don't have to be reliant on other countries for these raw materials that are going into battery production. And, and I do believe like, you know, there is a huge trend to continue to bring a lot of vital manufacturing back to America. I think, you know, batteries being one of them would be huge. So that's, that's really cool news. I did not see that. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because I found that they'll put forward EVs and, and sustainable transportation as kind of the reason for doing this. But if you really strip back the curtain, it's all 
like defense industry stuff. I mean, that's why we want to have the silicon here and be able to do our chips. That's why we want to kind of have these rare earth minerals. Because at the end of the day, we don't like the idea of having to source raw materials that go into our bombs, tanks, weapons, et cetera, that come from someone who could be an adversary or, or at least uh, something that's far away from around the world that could be, could be blocked. And so it's interesting just to see how that uh, economic force is playing out. Yeah, we would be at the mercy of whoever has those raw materials, that's for sure. And we saw some of that during COVID. You know, you look at PPE, I mean, all of our, you know, masks and gowns and gloves and all that stuff. And even a lot of our medicine is, is coming from China. So it's, I think it was eye-opening for, for a lot of people. Well, this was pretty eye-opening, I think, in terms of current events that have just happened over the past week or two. Let's, let's talk about Italic. Um, I know Italic very well because I know Jeremy, the founder, and Italic is, I think, an inspiration when it comes to this model, right? Because for those that don't know Italic, you know, the backstory basically is Jeremy comes from a manufacturing family. He has, you know, roots in, in China. And what he realized, like a lot of people in supply chain, is that these manufacturers make such a slim percentage of the actual retail value that us as consumers buy, right? So if I'm purchasing, let's say, you know, a hundred dollar watch, you know, the factory might have made like nine or ten percent of that money. And their net margin, their net income is probably like, you know, two percent of that, right? And so his whole model and his whole theory is how do I enable, you know, quality and vetted factories that work with luxury brands and that work with reputable brands already to gain more of that margin and to offer high quality products directly to American consumers. And so Italic launched in 2018, you know, it's been in market for uh, about six years right now. And it's just been really interesting to see how this brand has played out. You know, they're a, a eight figure brand, they're growing a lot. And I mean, they switched models a bit too that we'll talk about, but I just think Jeremy's background in terms of understanding this gap of, hey, most consumers don't understand and don't have any acknowledgement of, you know, how little a factory is making when they actually produce a product. And so Jeremy is trying to flip the switch and the whole Italic team is trying to flip the switch a bit in terms of, you know, enabling American consumers to buy, you know, the same products that are coming from luxury brands, but directly from a manufacturer. Yeah, I think this is one of the things that you know, really caught my eye when we decided to do this deep dive is, is really the innovation in the business model. We're going to continue to look at really big, well-known name brands, but Italic, you know, like you said, wasn't really a name brand for most people. And what, what he's uncovered is this idea that people just want a really nice handbag sometimes, or they want really nice shoes. Yes, the brand and the label is, is important to, to, to an extent, but if I can get something that's just as good for a fraction of the price, and kind of create a win-win with a direct from manufacturer framework. Uh, you really don't see too many people trying that and then actually being successful with it. Totally. And I mean, I think the hardest part and one of the hard parts that they had to deal with very early on is, you know, they have to sell manufacturers on this concept too, right? Because these factories have to, you know, basically put their products on consignment, if you will. You know, Italic is not you know, buying those goods up front, they're saying, hey, we're creating this marketplace, this platform to enable you to sell your high quality goods, you know, with an italic label, but but not, you know, bold and on the front, you know, it just has a little italic tag on it. And, and, you know, say, hey, you're going to put, you know, multi six figures or millions of dollars into inventory on consignment, we're going to warehouse it for you in America, and enable you to be a part of this great, you know, consumer experience while also increasing your, your net margin significantly. And so, you know, what, what Jeremy really had to do when he was just starting Italic is he spent, you know, the first nine months of 2018 living in China and visiting, you know, multiple factories uh, literally every day. I mean, he says and describes in an article on Forbes that, you know, him and their forced sourcing manager that came uh, from a you know high end brand, spent you know nine months just going to multiple factories to prepare for their launch in November, and it, it was literally I think like 
this sales proposition with the manufacturer because you know typically you go to a factory and you say hey i've got this this po you know these are the products i want to produce will you produce them for me you know if it's the right fit factory they'll probably say yes whereas this you know italic really flipped the switch because they're going to a factory and say hey you know we're building this marketplace will you you know produce goods for us but we're not going to pay for the goods until they're sold right and it's going to be your kind of similar design products to what you're already producing for these luxury and high-end brands, but it's going to just have a small italic tag on it. And, you know, we're going to enable you to increase your, your, your net margin. So I think it was a, a, a sales pitch like we've never seen before for these factories. And so that was kind of the first thing that the italic team had to pull off. Well, what I think is also really interesting about it is... They didn't attempt to say, we want you to make XYZ bag or XYZ shoe or XYZ uh, whatever, right? What they did is they went to the factory and said, what do you want to make? What are you really good at? What do you take pride in that you think is going to sell well because uh, Louis Vuitton or whoever is, is ordering it from you? And, and so it, it's, it's almost like he was able to do a lot of consumer research without doing any of the research itself because he was using what the factories naturally were good at, what they were proud about. Uh, to to kind of have them put on the marketplace and and put the brand on. Totally, totally. And I think, you know, the Italic team really went for it from the get-go, right? So they launched in November of 2018, and they launched, you know, basically by announcing their $13 million Series A. Um, And for those that are surprised, like, wow, you know, Jeremy and his team are able to raise $13 million, you know, upon launch. Jeremy has already had a lot of success up to this point as a founder, right? He's a Teal Fellow. He started Fountain, which is like a hiring marketplace for Fortune 2000s. That's now, you know, a, a, a big, big business. Um, and so he's been in the, you know, VC and Y Combinator environment. And so he's very well connected. And so, you know, to me, at that time, launching with that capital up front, I mean, you... Would, ha- would have had to be a repeat founder to do that, to be able to, you know, go out and raise $13 million upon launch. But he also needed that capital to set up the infrastructure in order to pull this off. And when Italic launched, they, re- they launched with a membership. So it was membership only. And so that meant they were kind of trying to take like a, a Costco-esque type of model where they said, hey, to shop on our website, you have to sign up for a $60 a year membership. I think originally this was was their goal is to make money on their membership base and take a very small small margin on the actual products that were sold through Italic that were you know produced by their manufacturing partnerships but you know I think the membership model started to constrain them in some sense but members you know had a lot of benefits right I am uh, to this day an Italic member and it's only $60 a year and I get a $120 sign up credit and I get, you know, $5 every time I leave a product review. So they're also trying to incentivize, you know, reviews, which is awesome. But, you know, to me, it seems it was like a no brainer, right? I'm, I'm paying a $60 membership, but I'm getting $120 credit. And so I remember logging in like last year and being like, oh, wow, I have $120 on a towel to spend. And I bought, you know, some really nice towels that are like those huge towels. I think, you know, one of the things we'll dive into is how they've expanded into different categories, which is a big challenge for a platform like this, because number one, picking what products to start with and then understanding what SKUs to expand into is super challenging. But, you know, let's talk about their membership a little bit right now, because, you know, we've seen membership models work really, you know, with with big box retail when it comes to Costco and when it comes to like Amazon Prime. But, you know, we were just talking about Shein and Timu, where in some sense, you know, they're similar to a very cheap italic. There's no membership. And, you know, they're making some margin, you know, on on their products that are being sold. But I wonder what difference that experience would have if to shop on Timu or Shein, if you needed a membership. And, And we'll see that, you know, in 2021, Italic actually opened up their membership. But I'm curious, you know, what do you think? changed amongst that time of launching in 2018 with a membership and then three years later deciding, hey, we're going to open this up to the public? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that when I look at Italic, it's kind of the juxtaposition of a couple different contrary business models, right? We talked about this idea that 
hey, I want to I see how I can give more margin to my factory. And can I ship directly? That's like the first innovation, if you want to call it that. The second piece is consignment and saying everything I'm going to have is going to be consigned here in the U.S. from Asia. And the third part is this idea that I'm really only going to make money from a subscription, which you, that you mentioned is typically what you see in SaaS or what you would see in a, in a content play. And so I think that that all works if you're able to drive a lot of traffic. And so I think if Italic was the size of Costco, then they could probably have stuck with their existing business model and you know charged a couple hundred bucks a year. Uh, that would have you know been able to, to service them if they were really big. That that's a, builds a really interesting business for them as well. Uh, but I think that they they have very interesting models. But my perspective is that maybe they were trying to do too much too soon, or or just this idea that perhaps they didn't have the density to you know how many how many people do you have paying sorry one hundred twenty dollars a year. How many people do you need to have in order for that business in and of itself to be viable? And so I think the reason, part of the reason why they wanted to open up, become a bit of a brand, try to take some of that margin themselves, uh, was just so that they could continue and, and could have good economics for what's there. But I know you, you've been uh, paying attention to the business a lot more than I have. Does that sound kind of on par with what you're thinking? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, look, when you have a membership like this that restricts your, your shopper base, if you will, you know, when you can only shop on Italic if you're a member, obviously, they're probably not driving the same amount of volume to factories as if when they didn't have a membership, right? And so when they open up the floodgates, quote unquote, they're probably going to send more volume to factories, which becomes more attractive to factories. But I mean, I just looked up really quickly, like how many members are Costco members? And it is insane. I mean, in yeah. 2017, Costco had 90 million members. And, you know, as of last year, they have over 129 million, looks like almost 130 million members. And so you think about that membership and how much, you know, revenue they're just driving from that membership alone. That is wild to think about. Part of me thinks like, should Italic have kept the membership and just thought longer term? I mean, you know, that's, that's, another way to look at it. But I think also probably it came down to a decision of understanding two things. Number one, that their factories wanted more volume. And in order to get more volume to their factories, to their manufacturing partners, they needed obviously more people to be shopping on Italic. And they felt like that was restricted by their membership. Number two, I think that Italic realized, you know, consumers still want to resonate with a brand. And Italic kind of I think flipped their script a little bit as they opened up their membership upon realizing, you know, people actually want to be able to uh, uh, resonate with a brand, right? And it's not just, hey, we're a, we're a marketplace, but Italic itself now is, is actually uh, a brand, right? And so I think it's kind of that flip that script for them that opened their eyes to understanding, hey, you know, maybe we should let go of this membership. And they still offer it and they have those special perks like I discussed. But, you know, it's not restricting people from shopping on italic.com. But, you know, with that said, I think part of that decision also came with their thesis of expanding their SKU count. Because, I mean, Jeremy says too, he is quoted in Forbes that, you know, when, when, when Italic started, they were more uh, having a, a curation focused lens and they started the year thinking they were going to launch a thousand products but you know they ended up launching about a hundred i think you know especially at a small scale that italic started with to launch a thousand products in a year is insane to fathom i mean you know there's there's some you know like a weight luggage for example they have hundreds of employees they're not launching nearly a thousand products in a year you know even if they could or casper or any of these large you know e-commerce brands and so I think um, they set a very high goal of trying to launch a thousand products in a year when they were opening up their membership. But at the same time, you know, they have expanded their SKUs a lot. I mean, Jeremy talks about them moving into out outdoor gear and, and, and more products along those lines. I mean, let's talk about what we think it looks like for Italic to launch new SKUs, right? I mean, what do you think their process is when they go to a manufacturer and they say, hey, we want to get into outdoor gear? What does that look like? They probably go through and try to understand, you know, what are the best factories to work with? What do you think that looks like inside of Italic when it comes to launching in a new category? Yeah, well, I just want to underscore one point, too, is, is that initial goal of a thousand items. 
that that's not as if you're saying, all right, I want to make a thousand t-shirts. I'm going to have different sizes, of the same logo in different colors. This is in many cases, lots of different categories as well. Um, so, so that was a, a very big undertaking and it, it's probably a good idea that they dialed it back down to something a little bit more realistic. But if, if I were them, what I would be looking at is what kind of worked at the, at the beginning. And that is going to my factories and what are you proud of? What do you want to make? Uh, and then basically having further conversations to say, all right, we think our customers are interested in not only the product you sell, but also something that's slightly adjacent. Is there one, could you make this? Is this something that you've done before? And if not, is there anybody you'd recommend that you know that you think would be a good thing to partner with? And so I would really leverage that factory network, that factory relationship, which really is the key secret sauce uh, for Italic uh, to, to go forward and, and try to build it. I, I necessarily wouldn't go the other route, which is what most people do and say, all right, we're going to do our research. We're going to develop something. We're going to have some specs. We're going to go out and bid it. Because uh, it's really for them having a few really high quality, close relationships of people who are willing to to join them on this business model adventure. That's really the difference maker for them versus a traditional brand that is is trying to find something for the lowest cost, paying for the inventory up front and, and owning that brand experience. Yeah, I would I would agree. I mean, I think too the numbers probably went up and to the right in 2021 because in October 2021 they announced their 37 million dollar Series B. I think it shows that they were are and continue to be going for it in terms of growth, right? I mean, to raise that amount of capital, I mean, Crunchbase says they've raised a total of 52 million dollars. So, it's a significant amount of capital for a e-commerce driven company. Um, I think it's interesting to understand, you know, at the end of the day, their goal with factories is to, you know, increase their net margin, but also enable them to co-invest into that inventory. And I think there's probably some sort of dynamic where Italic must have its own merchandising team because, you know, you and I have been to factories and the Canton Fair and all these different trade shows where you see some of these products that are designed by factories and you're like, hey, like this is not going to work in the American market. And like even sizing, right? I mean, Italic has apparel as a huge category on their marketplace. And just so sort of think about that in terms of like, you know, hey, uh, a, a small in China is, is not a small in America, right? And so even from a, a sizing perspective, I think they have to do a lot in terms of merchandising with these factories. So something to consider. but. What's interesting, I know you looked on their LinkedIn and they don't list too many of their employees on LinkedIn. I don't know if that's purposeful or, you know, what their team dynamics look like today, but I would assume that they would have a merchandising team to work with these factories. Yeah, that was like you mentioned. I looked around, I could find only one person outside of Germany who was with Italics today. Uh, and that was a head of operations in China who I assume is, is working with the factories and, and managing all those sorts of things. So also kind of an interesting piece here of maybe they've just done a really good job of outsourcing and, and building out teams overseas and uh, LinkedIn is not as important to them, but uh, very interesting business and, and business model that way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's just interesting timing right now, especially given that number one, you know, the cost to acquire a customer has gone up. Number two, Many e-commerce brands are focusing on LTV of their customers. You know, I, I read a statistic that was saying like, hey, to really be a viable e-commerce business, you need to have like a 30 to 40% repeat purchase rate with your customers. And in my mind, I think Italic hits that, right? I would assume the LTV is higher than your average e-commerce brand because people are coming back and because they have so many different categories that they cater to. But I don't think it's as like high volume as some of these cheaper marketplaces, right? You're not going to Italic as if it's like a, you know, Amazon or Timu. You're going for a high quality, you know, set of, of, of uh, silverware or you're going for a high quality, you know, set of, of, of clothing, whatever it may be. Um, and so I think it's a bit of a different dynamic that way. But I also think what's interesting, too, is that. Italic seems to have invested quite a bit into technology, which, you know, I don't know if it necessarily sets them apart as a brand, but I think from an operating standpoint, it seems like they have a platform that they can interact with and understand inventory levels at the factory level, as well as, you know, at their warehouse. 
um, which isn't important from a supply chain perspective. But I mean, I just wonder what that technology investment looked like from the get go and what factories think of that. Because, you know, I know from our experience at Sourceify, getting factories to use technology is not easy. How do you think they navigated that? You know, it's it's tough. Um, to, you know, building tech, even very simple tech, is not is not cheap. So we uh, we we both have uh, paid tuition, if you want to call it that, in the past. I think some of the interesting things that they have built from a technology perspective, just to kind of fill in a little bit. The most interesting thing for me was that they built payment rails between the U.S. and China. Uh, so effectively, a version of Stripe that allows them to deal directly with uh, their Chinese manufacturers. That's something I haven't seen before. I know you've got like remote.com or deal or things like that that are doing it for people. But those are typically smaller check sizes. And the way that those kind of work today is it's not like a bank transfer where money's in one account and, and it goes over to the other one. It's more of an informal IOU where I, you know, you're in the U.S., you, you call me up and say, hey, uh, so-and-so just deposited 100 bucks. They want you to, to open it up in, in Asia. And I say, okay, cool. I'll, I'll front the money because I know that you're going to pay me back. Like that's kind of how that works as an informal network versus something that's a little bit more standardized, like a Visa or MasterCard. And so one of the things that, that I dug into that I saw that they built was the ability to do this, uh, I think, at scale with their factories, which is truly remarkable if it, if it really works and should probably be its own product. Because uh, I can think of probably a dozen other companies that would look at it. Um, but <clears throat> I think when it comes with this build versus buy decision in general uh, for a company, you kind of have to look at this and ask a few questions as one, is what we're trying to build going to be strategic? And in, in the case of a payment rail for US-China uh, operations, I do think that's strategic. So it would make sense to invest in that. Um, the other option would be to outsource it, uh, to find someone else who's doing it. But then you also allow competitors or would-be competitors to basically stand on your shoulders to some extent and use that same technology that's coming there. So the first kind of question is, is it strategic? If it is, then you should probably spend the money to build it. If it's not, my thought would be that they need to outsource, need to, to kind of find someone who's only thinking about this specific problem that is willing to build a business around that part of it. And that helps you come to market sooner. So I think on, on some, there are probably some things that they built that were the right call that they did. And there are probably other things that maybe were side quests that that money could have been spent elsewhere. Yeah, I agree. I mean, one thing that I've learned about you know, any product, whether it be consumer or business or, you know, any software in particular is if you're spending money, you know, you need to understand how that is correlating with the end goal of your customer. You know, if you're spending a lot of money to change your back end or to, you know, update some sort of process that's not going to affect your end customer, is that money really well spent? That's a key question, I think. And so whenever you go into investing into technology, as a brand, I think you need to understand how is this affecting my customer? Because at the end of the day, a lot of those technology investments might make it more efficient for your team, but is that actually making it better for your customer? Maybe, maybe not, right? I think it's a key consideration and question to ask. And I mean, it's it's just interesting to see because Italic, they definitely have invested quite a bit into technology. Um, it looks like they work with, you know, third party fulfillment centers, uh, both in China. And I mean, when I bought products from Metallic, it's coming from San Diego. So I'd assume somewhere in San Diego, maybe that's a section three, two, one setup. I'm not hundred percent sure. Um, but it could be just given that, you know, San Diego is, is right across uh, the border from, from Mexico, of course. And I think for some of their products, it probably makes sense, but, um, you know, that, that's just, uh, thinking out loud, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of their operations and what they need to do to excel, it seems like number one category expansion in terms of how do we, you know, drive uh, growth through category expansion to attract more people. You know, if I'm like someone that's going camping for the first time, maybe I go to Italic instead of REI now, but I used to just go to Italic for, you know, home goods and, and stuff of that nature and apparel. But hey, now they they have these uh, these these categories as well. So I think category expansion is, is important for them. And then I think too, like one question that we asked ourselves, you know, doing research here is if you were to start a marketplace or luxury brand today, how would you go about it? To me, I think the key unique difference that I've seen in the market today for any e-commerce brand has really been partnering with a creator. You know, if you look at the products that have grown like crazy the past few years 
it's all partnerships with celebrities and creators, right? I mean, whether it be like Prime Hydration and Logan Paul, whether it be, you know, Feastables and Mr. Beast, whether it be one that a lot of people don't know about, but that's crazy to me, is uh, Shay Mitchell in Beast Travel. It's B-E-I-S. I don't know how to pronounce that, but it's a, it's a kind of away luggage type of brand. This brand launched, like, I think, five years ago and last year they reported over 120 million dollars in revenue for a luggage brand it's pretty insane um and it's just a you know creator-led brand right and so i think like italic they do influencer marketing right but what does that actually mean and what that does that actually entail i think it might be a little bit harder for them but i mean i'm curious you know if you were to launch like an italic type you know marketplace or brand today what kind of unique advantages do you think you would have? Like, is it just the supply chain or is it the technology or is it really like, Hey, we need to be partnered with a, with a creator that has this audience we want to tap into. I think you're absolutely right with this build the audience first and then let the consumers come. But let me answer that question in two ways. Cause I'll talk about how I would do it today. And then what I think Italic should do going forward. Um, so the benefit that someone who's starting something similar today would have, is there are a lot of tech solutions that we talked about that are out of the box, ready to go. Um, have you heard of Miracle? M-I-R-A-K-L? I'm not familiar with them. What do they do? So it's Miracle.com. Basically, it is a white box, a white glove, out of the box marketplace solution. So you're able to create your own marketplace. You're able to have this drop, drop shipping architecture. So all these things that the previous Ebays, Amazons, uh, Talisman had to build, you can now sign up and just have this thing that's white labeled. And, and ready to go. So that would be what I would start with as far as a core infrastructure for being able to curate and, and own those things. Um, so right off the bat, most of the technological stuff that you have to do is taken care of. Like it, it's, it's just there out of the box. You can just do it. So that'd be the first thing. I think I, your, your insight with having a very specific um, connection to a creator or, or some sort of way to drive volume, that's going to be the big thing because ultimately people are going to wonder, hey, are we going to just go to Amazon to get something? Or is there something that's unique about this? Um, one of my, my favorite small brands is a, is a brand called 54 Kibo. Um, and I've, I've known the founder for a number of years when I was first starting ISPA. And she has this really interesting idea of wanting to bring uh, authentic African uh, styles and designers to the US. And so she's built an entire marketplace sourcing from Africa, which is the hardest place to source from. And you know, when you go to 54 Kibo, yes, you could go to Home Goods or yes, you go to Amazon to get a pillow. But what they've done is they've really put a, a, a focus on it that the items that they're going to, to, to give you are curated. They are with a very specific lens. And so I think that's the, the second thing that would do is if you don't have the creator, right? Sometimes you can have maybe uh, Jennifer Anderson saying, here are my favorite things or Oprah's favorite things. Like Oprah should have a marketplace if she doesn't already. Maybe she'd call us and we'll do that one. We'll do that one next. Um, but you, you have to have someone who is curating and people want to curate that. They want that curation in order to go ahead and do that. I completely agree. And it has to be a trusted creator or celebrity that has a really engaged audience, right? I mean, I think that's like, I mean, Oprah, I mean, Oprah kind of like, she had a little bit of a marketplace with Oprah's list, right? I mean, I remember reading stories of, of brands being on like her list and all of a sudden generating like multi-million dollars in sales just from having a mention on her list, right? So in some case, you know, she didn't, necessarily monetize that list but um if she had made it like a marketplace where she's making affiliate dollars she definitely could have and probably could have made like you know 100 plus million dollars on that which is just crazy to think about and fathom because i, I mean i don't know I, i've been trying to like decipher what size italic is in terms of their scale and there's not you know public information out there but i would assume just based on the amount of money they've raised you know they've got to be like a low eight figure brand at least um, and, and I think, you know, they're going to continue to grow through category expansion. And the hard part I think that they're facing right now is does that like arbitrage still exist in the DTC world, right? You know, you hear about brands like losing money on first purchase, which is uh, a tough position to be in. And I don't think any, you know, investor or operator wants to be losing money on first purchase. So I don't know. I, I, I'm curious because that arbitrage doesn't exist anymore in D, D, the DDC world. Like, what does this future look like? Does it look like a marketplace like Italic? Um, is it all just creator-led? You know, where, where do you think this goes? 
Yeah, well, there's there's a lot there. So I, I look at the arbitrage question a little bit differently because in the early 2010s, there were an enormous amount of companies that were raised that raised money on the idea that they were going to go direct to, to the manufacturer, cut out the middleman, and give you a cheaper price. Hubble Contacts, Dollar Shave Club, Harry's, uh, Warby Parker, all of these companies had that basic promise that that's exactly what they were going to do. Well, what happened is that, yeah, you gave up rent and you gave up some of these broker fees, but the cost to advertise online has become so expensive that that's effectively the new rent. And so, you know, you really don't have a situation where ordering something direct to consumer is, is necessarily cheaper than going to retail. Like we've really started to see that balance out really over the last five years, but I think pretty, pretty dramatically in the last year and a half, um, especially with some of the, the changes that Apple did with uh, iOS 14. So, so that's like, just an inherent piece of like, what is D2C? And, and what do we look at? I think that D2C is, is not going anywhere. It's, it's still going to be there, but it's going to be a, a weapon, a channel versus an entire business model. And so there's a lot of people who are going to be interested in D2C as a way to, one, create a connection with their consumer, uh, or two, to do consumer research. I remember a couple of years ago, I was doing a, a project for Kindbar, and uh, we were helping launch their UK D2C fulfillment operations. And what I pitched to the team then was that, you know, they were thinking about D2C wrong. Like it wasn't really that people were going to be interested in having a case of Kind Bars shipped to their house every quarter. That's like a, a yes, that is a subscription way to go. Uh, you know, th that's not necessarily what's there. But what I suggest they do is to set up a a commercial kitchen somewhere in London and basically build this so that it was a small batch sort of facility. And the idea there would be that uh, you know there'd be some sort of minimum. Maybe people have to order 100 bars or 500 bars or things like that. But you let them come up with their own flavor combinations uh, and to have their own packaging. And you think about for weddings, schools, bachelor parties, whatever, you could have some really fun with that. But the, the interesting thing there is if you did this well, and that's what the D2C experience was, and it was this mass personalization piece, effectively, you would not have to do any consumer research because you might see that people keep picking pistachio and banana as a really interesting combination for the Kind Bar. And you see that play out over and over again, and you potentially see some repeat purchases. Well, suddenly, what is the next flavor that I'm going to take into retail and, and do on a massive scale? It's pistachio and banana. And so I think that like, that's where e-commerce is going to go, is I think that everybody's going to have a retail presence. Everybody's going to have some sort of mass personalization element. And it really is about curation. It's about having that direct uh, connection with an audience uh, in order to, to push things along that way. Yeah, it, it, that that example reminds me of like a Build-A-Bear type of concept. I mean, I feel like that would honestly be awesome to be able to walk into a store and like make my own branded like protein bar or whatever it may be. That'd be that'd be so fun and such a cool connection with that brand. I would I would actually love that. I think Italic. I, I mean, I do think they'll probably you know open their own pop-ups or stores in the next you know year or so. It seems like that's the route that a lot of these brands are going. I think what's challenging for them from an omni-channel standpoint is like. I don't know if we're in a position to sell into retail, right? Like if, you know, some store came to them like Nordstrom and was like, hey, we want, you know, to sell Italic in our store. That would be a really interesting dynamic for them. Um, I think they could probably do it, I guess, like in a section in the Nordstrom store, like, hey, this is the Italic zone or some sense. But I think it would be uh, different than if Nordstrom came to, you know, Viore or whatever it may be and said, hey, we want to sell your athleisure in Nordstrom. It's a completely different type of setup. So I think they have a, an interesting omni-channel approach that they'll hopefully take soon and we'll maybe see some metallic pop-ups in the next year or two. One thing that caught my eye too as I was doing traffic research around Italic is, is you know, they, I mean, SEM Rush, which is what I use to, to check out traffic, says they get 64,000 organic searches and 4.4 thousand uh, paid searches so usually it's like i would say less by like 30 percent on here so i would assume they're getting well over 100 120 thousand uniques per month but one thing that really stuck out to me is that their organic keywords the top organic keyword is literally italic and it says there's 27,000 people searching for italic per month which is huge i mean that means they have some real you know brand loyalty there if people are just going on google and searching italic twenty seven thousand times a month so if that's the case i mean i would assume they're definitely getting like i don't know 120 150,000 unique visitors a month at least um but it goes to show like okay they are driving some 
organic and resonating with some customers because they're getting you know solid uh, organic traffic just around their name. Yeah, yeah, and you know, italic can mean a lot of different things. So hopefully that's all good traffic and high intentional. I'd be interested to see what the conversion rate looks like for all those visits. Um, maybe there's some people who, are, who aren't going there on purpose, but are like, oh, this is cool. Let me sign up. Uh, so yeah, that, that, that works out well. I, I did have yeah. a, a thought here that I wanted to share with you. It, not that it, like Italic is a great business that's doing well, but I want to ask you the question and I'll share my thoughts. But if you had to recommend a few strategy changes or a few course corrections or things like that to Italic, is there anything that you would point to to say, hey, I think you guys should lean into this or I think you should stop doing that? Yeah, I mean, if I were in charge of 10xing the business, literally what I would do is go into the most interesting categories that I have, find creators that have like a million plus highly engaged followers and go to them and say, hey, I want to do a partnership with you. We're going to cover all of the operations. We're going to cover all of the design. We're going to cover everything. We just want to do a partnered line with you. And I bet you if they did like 12 curated creator-led drops, per year so they're doing like one a month which i don't think is that crazy given that they're already launching so many SKUs per year i think they would crush it i mean i think this would really make them highly profitable and i think that you know those lines would would sell out and they would you know probably grow i would assume by just 100 percent doing that itself so um that's the approach that i would take in terms of like hey how do we take this from in a low eight figure, which I think it's around low eight figures in revenue to like a high figure business, I'd be like, hey, you need to be doing creator led drops every single month. Yeah, you make the rev share interesting enough. Uh, you, you have the pick of the litter, so to speak. Like That would be pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What was your answer to that? So I, I took it a completely different model, right? So I'm, I'm more of an operations guy. Uh, I love your idea. Is, is, I love that as well. Um, I would actually go back to the roots a little bit. So I think they were onto something with this whole Costco uh, as a motif idea. Um, what I would do is I would actually start opening own retail shops. Right? I wouldn't try to partner with a with a Nordstrom or something like that. I would start opening up italic um, stores and I would open them up in outlet malls. Right. So people who are already there looking for a bargain, they, they're, you know, they're going to be by the Louis Vuitton store. They're going to be by the Nike store. Uh, I would start opening up retail shops in those locations. And kind of take a a home goods TJ Maxx esque approach to it, where you don't know what you're going to find, right? You know that Italic is known for very well known high end products that are, you know, affordably priced. And I, I would basically have something where you're going to change the curation every couple of months. And so when people are at the outlet mall or they're walking through there, if they see a handbag that they want, they have to take it right then because it may not be there next week. And so the way that I would, I would kind of think about this is you have those retail locations, you can make them membership only down the road if you wanted to. Uh, but the whole point would be that you start driving people to this, to this physical location. They start to experience it, start to see what's going on. Uh, maybe you take a page out of what Majuri is doing. And if you're selling online as well, uh, if, if you have a limited drop and you're selling out of a handbag, you get the backlog there and you can do another one later on and start to email those people. But they, they can't be an evergreen store. Because then they're going to be competing with a Louis Vuitton or Hermes or, or things like that. This has to be about really cool pieces that look a lot more expensive than they are, uh, that are, are somewhat of an impulse buy, right? Like that, that's kind of how I think about doing that. Yeah, I like that idea. I think that's a, that's a good one. We should, we should pitch it to the Italic team. We should pitch both these. That, that'd be really cool. What do you think? I mean, as, as we wrap up here on e-commerce on tap, one kind of big pending question I have is like, what does an exit look like for Italic, right? Like who's going to buy Italic? What, what do you think that looks like? I think it really depends on what they want to be when they grow up. So, you know, if the technology is as good as it looked like in the research, then the first thing I would do is I would split that off. I, I would put that into a separate entity that they own completely and then can either raise money for or sell off outright uh, in order to, to let those types of investors value that business. Because they're probably, you know, if, if they were to be public or if they were to be bought, there's probably an element where there are investors that are going to be discounting the value of, of that technology uh, because of all the other stuff going on. So that's the first thing I would do is try to split that up. If they wanted to be a brand, then they're going to have to be basically built and, and have the mechanics and the economics of a brand. 
that means potentially moving away from some of the hyper-friendly factory policies that they had, where you know they want the factory to have maybe a 30 or 40% margin. I'm making that up. Uh, and they're going to have to have those 70 to 90% margins themselves because someone is going to purchase them, not necessarily the factory. And so, you know, exits there could be, it's kind of fuzzy. I think, I think really it's a question of like they have to really figure out what they want to be when they grow up. But, you know, LVMH is one that everybody kind of points to that if it, you know, is doing a billion dollars, maybe that's of interest. I probably don't see it like that. I, I think that maybe a Sephora, a Kohl's, an Ulta, uh, somebody that is, is kind of playing in this um, approachable fashion piece as opposed to high fashion would, would be a, a good landing spot for them. But I think that fundamentally, there's a lot of work that they're going to have to do to really present themselves as, as well as they could be uh, to engineer that exit. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I tend to think like, I don't know what group bought Brandless. You know, I, uh, I forget what capital group bought Brandless. But to me, it seems like a to, to fit with that type of playbook in terms of, you know, can we align ourselves with a company that, you know, wants to cut out the middleman, you know, go directly to a factory and, and really utilize this supply base as well. Um, I mean, I think they'll get bought by a, a private equity firm that's kind of rolling up these different marketplace-driven uh, e-commerce plays. But we'll see. You know, I think they're still pretty pretty early on. I mean, it's, you know, they were just launched like five, six years ago. So they're early in their journey. You know, they're well capitalized and continuing to grow. And it's cool to see that they get, you know, a lot of uh, organic search traffic too. So I think this was a really good deep dive on Italic. Are there any pending questions or comments you want to leave for people tuning in? No, I, well, I say no, and then I talk again. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of things to like about this business, right? I think that the unique models that they've approached with how to work with the factories, the tech that they've built, the infrastructure of how they built the team, there's a lot of really interesting things I think people could learn from. I think for, for Italic itself, the most important thing for them is to be running a profitable business right now, because that gives them the optionality to decide what they want to be when they grow up. And they don't necessarily have a, a date uh, you know, a year, two years in the future where they have to make a decision. And so that would be what I would encourage them or anybody else in this position to think about is, you know, be a profitable $15 million company, if, if that's what it takes, as opposed to an unprofitable $30 million company. I dig that, especially especially in this market. Aaron, I think this was an awesome ep episode of e-commerce on tap. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We appreciate your comments, your reviews, your likes subscribe and Aaron any any last words as we tune out of this episode of e-commerce on tap brought to you by Sourceify and Isba have a good week everybody all right cheers